breast cancer treatment landscape continues to adapt and evolve as we are learning about new targets and develop novel treatments. Sometimes, old targets are revisited with new therapies. Today, we are going to discuss such a groundbreaking, high clinical impact study for patients with tumors which were traditionally classified as HER2 negative, but now HER2 low. Welcome to Project Oncology on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Pavani Chelasani, and joining me today to talk about Destiny Breast 04 trial is Dr. David Cameron, Professor of Oncology and Deputy Director for Innovative Healthcare Delivery Program at the University of Edinburgh. Dr. Cameron, thanks for being here today. A pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So to start off our discussion, Dr. Cameron, can you give us some background on the Destiny Breast 04 trial? What got you and your team interested in exploring this treatment option? So we all know about HER2 positive or HER2 amplified breast cancer, somewhere between 15 and 20% of cases, which have very high levels of the cell surface protein receptor, usually as a consequence of gene amplification. And we've got used to thinking of the vast majority of breast cancers as HER2 negative, where the HER2 protein plays no part in its biology and therefore offers no therapeutic opportunities. There was a little bit of evidence that there might be effects on cells adjacent to those in which the TDXD drug was taken up. And therefore this raised the possibility that you could use some HER2 on a cell surface of a breast cancer to allow the trastuzumab antibody to bind to it, the antibody drug complex to be pulled into the cell but because a potent payload was attached to that antibody, that antibody releases or is released from the payload within the cell. And suddenly you've delivered a cytotoxic inside a cancer cell that is not HER2 amplified, but had some HER2 protein on the cell surface. And that was really the hypothesis. And there were some early phase data to suggest that this hypothesis could be true. And so Destiny Breast 04 was designed as a full-blown phase three trial, potentially practice changing, to test this hypothesis in breast cancer patients who had metastatic disease and whose breast cancers expressed a level of HER2, but below the level that we call HER2 amplified, term that we now, or a group of cancers we now call HER2 low. Great, thank you. So can you hit the key highlights for the results for us? Two key highlights. The first, obviously, is efficacy. This drug was superbly efficacious. In our first analysis, we not only crossed the statistical threshold for significant clinical and statistical difference in progression-free survival, with almost a doubling of the median progression-free survival in the primary analysis population, those who had hormone receptor positive disease. But actually, we also crossed the threshold for calling clinical and statistical significant improvement in overall survival. And I think if I'm honest, I'm not sure many of us expected to see that. The secondary analysis group, which therefore included the smaller subpopulation of triple negative, was also positive. So we are seeing effect across all the patients in the trial, not just the hormone receptor positives. The second powerful signal, which was less of a surprise, but is really important to see, is that the toxicity of this drug was manageable. The pattern is different. So for example, partly perhaps because many of the patients were given uh, aribulin, we saw less neutropenia. We saw less infections. And that's important. In a patient population group, are primarily managed as outpatients who want to stay away from hospital. We did see more nausea, and that's important to bear in mind. This drug can cause nausea. And then, of course, this raised, there is the question of the interstitial lung disease or pneumonitis. Yes, it happened. We expect to see it with this drug. 
but the overall rate was modest. Great, thank you. So something that I wanted to touch base with you on, you know, the toxicities that you mentioned. Can you comment on how you look for or manage in your practice or would you recommend observing for both the ILD and also managing the nausea for these patients? One thing I think we've all learned as oncologists, and I'm sure you'd agree with me, is we need to preempt likely toxicities. Wherever possible, give prophylactic treatments so that patients don't or much less experience the toxicity. So for things like nausea, I think it's important to recognize it is a side effect of the drug, very manageable, look out for it, preempt it, give patients access to advice and additional therapeutics if they do experience it, allow them to maintain a good quality of life. So in our own practice at the moment, we are doing high-resolution chest CTs every six weeks. And we are picking up patients who have early pneumonitis, which is completely asymptomatic, grade one. And the advantage of that, of course, is not only that you preempt them developing more serious pneumonitis, which may be symptomatic, but actually you can intervene with additional steroids, get it under control, and then potentially continue with the drug. Absolutely. That is definitely something all of us have to keep in mind. So just to just clarify and, you know, just follow up on that question. So do you do the high resolution CT every six weeks for as long as the patient is on? My understanding, and I think we do need to see bigger data sets emerge, but my understanding is that the median time to this is is a few months. Most cases emerge within the first year. I suspect after a year, we will wind down the frequency, but we haven't quite worked out what that should be. And I think it's something across the globe that we oncologists need to share with each other. What have you learned? You know, Can we reduce the frequency at 12 months? I suspect we can, but I don't yet have data to tell you exactly how we should do it. Now, coming to discuss these findings in the context of clinical practice, how do you think these results impact treating our patients with HER2 lower metastatic breast cancer? And the most important thing I did want to get your opinion is, going forward, you know, how do you think the classification of HER2 is going to change? So in terms of clinical practice, I think you raised the two critical things. One is where should we use this drug once it's within license? And the second is, is our current approach to HER2 testing fit for purpose for HER2 low? Let me deal with the first one. I think it's very likely that this drug is going to get approved in the US almost certainly first and then in other parts of the world, hopefully fairly soon afterwards. And what it tells us is that if you have a patient, certainly with ER positive HER2 low breast cancer, when you need to give them chemotherapy in a metastatic setting, this is the most effective chemotherapy agent that we have got. In a triple negative setting, we'll obviously have to see what the regulators say, because the, tr- the whole ER positive plus triple negative grouping was the secondary endpoint, not the primary. If it's approved in triple negative two, then I think we've got a drug that based on a smaller number of patients, admittedly, but there's clear evidence of efficacy. And you can look at that efficacy signal in Destiny Breso 4 for the triple negative patients, and it's at least on par with what we're seeing with Sazituzumab. So I think it's very likely to become a drug for those patients too, probably in the second line. But ultimately, people may feel willing and able to move it to first line if that's within license. At the same time, and I don't think we should wait for licensing, at the same time, we need to be discussing with our pathology colleagues and our experts to say, do we think that the current IHC approach of 0, 1, 2, because obviously 3 is counting as positive, is the best way to identify HER2 low? And in that setting, there is a small number of patients, I think from a study called DAISY, who were HER2 zero, and even they had some responses, but fewer. So I suspect we may move into a world where we look for amplification, and that defines HER2 positive cases. And for the non-HER2 amplified at the gene level, we make some kind of measurement of the protein level on the cell 
whether it's through IHC with a different set of thresholds or with the same set of thresholds or some other approach, I think it's for others who are pathologists to, to help us understand. What we've got is okay. I don't think we need to change it now because we're seeing activity in the HER2 1 and 2 plus fish negative patients. But going forward, I suspect it may change. And just wanted to get your opinion on some practical things that we see, you know, with the HER2 low or IHC and frequently something all of us probably run into clinic is the testing of which sample. You know, is it the primary tumor? Because sometimes we get frequently, you know, with bone metastasis and HER2 IHC is hard to interpret in the setting when we have to do that. So can you comment in the trial how the HER2 low were classified? Was it based on the primary or metastatic or, or what would you recommend? It was done on both. Personally, if I want to treat a patient, I would like to know what the receptor status is of the cancer I'm treating rather than the one with which he was diagnosed, maybe one, five or 15 years earlier. So I was always advocate, if you can, to get tissue from the metastatic disease and to assay that for the HER2. But there are sites when you can't do it, bone is a challenge. And whilst we know that there is some switching of receptor status, it is still only in a minority. The only time where we have no large scale data to show that TDXD would work would be if that cancer has become completely HER2 negative. And that I think is a much less common scenario. Some of them switch to becoming HER2 positive, but we know the drug works in HER2 positive patients. So I'm less worried in a way for this drug about subtype switching in terms of HER2 levels because the proportion to go from some HER2 to absolutely none is, in my understanding, relatively small. And therefore, whilst you should go for the metastatic site if you can, if you can't and you've got some HER2 on the initial disease biopsy, I think it's a reasonable clinical judgment, as we do for everything else, to treat on the basis of that. Very important and very critical because these are all practical things that we encounter in clinic. So before we close, Dr. Cameron, do you have any final thoughts or takeaways you would like to share with their audience? I think the only other thing I would raise is the subgroup analysis, which basically shows that the critical subgroups, including prior CDK4-6 inhibitor, the level of, of HER2, how many prior lines of chemo the patient may have seen, etc., it didn't make any difference. The efficacy signal was essentially the same across all our subgroups, visceral, non-visceral, et cetera. And that's important to know. We don't have tools to tell us who are the very small number of patients who show no signs of drug efficacy. So can't easily say the drug won't work for this patient. And that's important in considering it with any patient in your clinic. Absolutely. Well, with those insights in mind, I want to thank my guest, Dr. David Cameron, for sharing his insights on the Destiny Breast 04 trial and its impact on treatment landscape for HER2 low metastatic breast cancer. Dr. Cameron, thanks for being here today. Thank you for inviting me. And I obviously want to thank all those involved in the trial, including all the patients, being willing to undertake this important piece of research. I'm Dr. Pavani Chilasani. To access this and other episodes in our series, visit reachmd.com slash project oncology where you can be part of the knowledge. Thanks for listening.